very key person in human history and in redemptive history. Calling him Abram, his name will change, but calling him Abram at this time. We saw last time how God revealed himself to Abram. And though Abram doesn't appear to be anyone special, at least from what the Bible records about him in the beginning, God calls Abram to go on a long journey to Canaan, and he gives Abram some great promises, including a promise that through Abram, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Abram obeys God out of faith. And at the center of his faith is a hope of a heavenly inheritance, of an inheritance with God, not strictly earthly blessings or an earthly inheritance. He's grateful for these things. But what's at the core of his motivation, what's at the heart of his faith, is a future with God. And of course, that's very instructive for the kind of faith that we are to have. Now, Roy brought up a question last time, which I wasn't quite ready to answer, uh, about was Abraham a sanctifying testimony of Yahweh to his family? So briefly, I want to return to address that question. On the one hand, we do see Terah and Lot, they come with Abraham or Abram after God reveals himself to Abram. Terah comes part of the way to Canaan, but it sounded like he wanted to go all the way. And Lot does go all the way to Canaan. And Lot, if we examine his life, he's implied to be righteous in the Old Testament. And he is called righteous explicitly in the New Testament. So was Abraham, was Abram sanctifying, was he a sanctifying witness to Lot and Terah? And Roy brought up last time that when seeking a wife for Isaac, Abram instructs his servant to go back to Haran, to upper Mesopotamia, far away from Canaan, to find a wife among his own kindred. Was this instruction because Abram didn't want his son marrying a pagan and around him in Canaan were just all pagans? And then by implication, does that mean that his relatives were Yahweh followers? Well, after reviewing some of the relevant biblical texts, here's what I'd say in response to that question. We first must remember that many of these kinds of questions regarding historical details in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, because it's even further away from our own time, the answer is going to have to be, we don't know. We can't say for sure. The Bible isn't entirely clear. Now, I've tried to walk a fine line in our Sunday school classes of acknowledging when we can't ultimately know something and establishing certain probabilities of what the answer could be based on the little historical and biblical evidence that we do have. I recognize that speculation can be dangerous when taken to extremes, and it can lead to false and faulty applications. And I, I don't want to get into that. But in picturing someone's biblical experience, we can sometimes narrow the field of what is possible or even probable as an answer to a historical question. So what about this one? Well, Abram was surely a testimony of Yahweh, testimony of faith in Yahweh on some level. I mean, we're talking about his faith today, right? He's recorded in the scriptures for a reason, and he is noted as a man of faith. And if that's true today, it certainly was true back then. I'm sure he stood out in a certain sense. Now, Abram's family, his servants, they interacted with him a good deal. They would have seen his faith on display. They would have heard about Yahweh just by observing him or speaking with him. But was Abram an uh, active proselytizer? Was he an evangelist for Yahweh? Those terms probably aren't the best to describe what Abram was doing. 
this might not be something you've heard before, but the evangelistic model that we see depicted in the Old Testament in terms of how do people come to know the true God with the patriarchs and with Israel in general, it's different than what's depicted in the New Testament. It's an attractional type of evangelism. And that is Israel doesn't go out and they're not called to go out into all the world and tell people about Yahweh. Rather, as people hear of Yahweh's great works in Israel, the righteous kings that reign in Israel, how God has brought such blessing and wisdom to the people of Israel, it's people from all over the world that will come to Israel to seek Israel's God. They are attracted by the light that's going forth from Israel and the blessings and, and the promises being fulfilled to Israel. And would you see how this does work to draw certain people in the Old Testament. The Queen of Sheba comes from the ends of the earth to hear Solomon's wisdom that came from Yahweh. Now, Naaman the Syrian comes to be healed by God's prophet. Rahab the harlot, she turns against Jericho because she says, I've heard about your God and about what he does for you. And, and then Ruth, the Moabitess, when she meets Naomi and learns of Naomi's God, she comes with Naomi to Israel. This was the model that's at work in the Old Testament. Ultimately, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't work. It's not fulfilled. Israel doesn't, doesn't fulfill its role as an attractional evangelism site because Israel just can't stay obedient to Yahweh. They can't reflect Yahweh to the world very well, and that doesn't attract the world to Yahweh. Of course, the New Testament model is quite different. We're not... A, we're not called to stay and obey as Israel was, we are called to go and make disciples. And of course, that's most obviously stated in Matthew 28. We are proclaimers of the good news, going out to all the world, actively looking to make disciples, which is different than what Israel and the patriarchs did. So back to Abram, was he an evangelist for Yahweh? That's not the right way to describe it. Surely he was a testimony, but not an active proselytizer as we would expect someone in the New Testament to be. Now, how effective was Abram's testimony? Were his relatives saved? Meh, I'm not sure. Certainly not all of them were. You should note that Abram looking for a wife among his relatives may be for another reason rather than theological or religious. After all, we have to recognize not everyone in Canaan in Abram's day was a pagan. We won't have time to get to it later, but in Genesis 14, we meet a man named Melchizedek who is a really interesting character, and he only appears briefly in the Bible. He's called a genuine priest of the Most High God, and Abram affirms that that's the same as Yahweh, and he lives near Sodom of all places. This is not an area you expect to find true God followers. Apparently, the knowledge of Yahweh, of the true God, it still existed in many or in different parts of the world, even in the land that Abram lived. And not just in Abram's day, but also afterwards. Because when we get to Moses, Moses finds a wife for himself from the daughters of Jethro, a, as the Bible calls him, a priest of Midian. And Midian is, a, is associated with the Arab line of descent. He has a wife who doesn't come from the line of Abraham, but from a different line. And this priest of Midian, he apparently, probably, was a Yahweh follower. And again, in Canaan or in and around the area where Israel lived. 
So it's not necessarily true that there were no Yahweh followers in Abram's land. It may be that Abram sends his servant to get a wife from his kindred for a different reason other than religious. It is true. It is consistent with what would later be commanded to Israel. Don't intermarry with the people of the land. They are evil and corrupt. I don't want you to learn their practices. Abram's behavior is consistent with what Israel would later be told to do. But that may not be the main reason or uh, reason at all for what, why Abram did what he did. It may have something more to do with not confusing the promises that were given to Abram and not the Canaanites. The right to inheritance of the land that may be the greater reason why Abram sends his servant away. The other thing we should notice that Abram's relatives are not exactly rock solid examples of faith in Yahweh, at least. Abram's servants, Abram's servant meets with Bethuel, Rebecca's father, and Laban, Laban, Rebecca's brother. This is what confused me last time. I'm like, Laban, he's there? But isn't he there later on? Yes, he is. He's actually in, in both times when Isaac needs a wife and when Jacob needs a wife end up going to, to where Laban is. Bethuel and Laban recognize that Yahweh is involved in bringing about this match, and they consent to it. But that itself does not mean that they're true, true Yahweh worshipers. Because here's another thing we have to remember. In ancient days, people are worshiping all sorts of gods. And in some sense, they're a little bit tolerant about that. Hey, I've got my God. You've got your God. I acknowledge that you've got your God. I don't, I'm not saying that your God doesn't exist. It's just not the God that I serve. In fact, we see a good example of this with Cyrus, king of Persia. Do you remember Cyrus? He's the one who leads the Persian Empire to overthrow the Babylonian Empire and according to, in accordance with the prophecies that God gives through Isaiah. And Cyrus, in Ezra chapter 1, he acknowledges that Yahweh was the one who gave him dominion over the earth. Really? The king of Persia is a Yahweh follower? No, he's just doing this as a PR move. It was true what he said, but he said this about all the gods of the peoples of the lands he conquered. It was his policy to try and get all the peoples and their gods on his side by allowing the people to return to their land and rebuild their temples. I mean, this is a, a savvy political move. And if you're thinking as a pagan, it makes sense religiously too. Make all the gods of my peoples happy. That way I, I and my descendants will be able to reign well. So when he acknowledges Yahweh, it doesn't necessarily mean that he's a follower of Yahweh. He just says, all right, that's your God. And yes, I believe your God is giving me dominion. The same thing could be happening with Abram's relatives. Now, the other thing to notice is that when Laban shows up again with Jacob, and he gives Leah and Rachel to Jacob as wives, Laban does deal deceitfully with Jacob. He's not exactly an upstanding example of faith, though Jacob has his own problems. Moreover, what is it that Rachel takes from Laban's house? Idols, household idols. And Laban even comes after Rachel for doing this. He says, why'd you take away my gods? There's a whole bunch of questions as to why she did that. That says something strange about Rachel, but it also says something about Laban and his, his faith in Yahweh, if he indeed had any. So what does this all mean? What's the bottom line? There are multiple reasons why Abram's relatives may have acknowledged Yahweh before Abram. It could be that they actually do follow Yahweh, at least some of them. Or it could be that 
They follow Yahweh and other gods at the same time. I mean, if the true knowledge of Yahweh is passed down, but other gods are introduced, it is possible that they served Yahweh along with other gods. And we certainly know that this would be what Israel would try to do later on in its history. Or it may be that these relatives didn't follow Yahweh at all, but they say, oh, he's your God. All right, I'll acknowledge your God when I'm dealing with you. But here's what we can say. Now, there's certainly a lot of uncertainty about this, but here we can say, Abram was surely a testimony of Yahweh, his relatives knew something of Yahweh, and some of his relatives became true followers. Imperfect, but apparently true followers. And those would be Lot, Rebecca, Rachel, and Leah. Because they're all mentioned later on as being followers of Yahweh. So somewhat extended answer to, to Roy's question, but I thought interesting. And it plays a little bit into what we're going to be talking about later on in today's class. But what are we talking about in today's class? Talking about the separation of Abram and Lot in Genesis 13. Now, originally I was going to talk about Genesis 13 and 14, but I think it's good that we just focus on 13 today. Why is this chapter so significant? We're going to find out. Here's our outline, somewhat of extended introduction for today's class. We're going to read and observe the chapter, all of Genesis 13. We'll consider what these events say about Abram and Lot, and then we'll consider our own connection to the blessings of Abraham. Let's pray before we continue. Lord God, I thank you for this day, for this word, for the connection, being able to work to, to Calvary. I pray that we continue to work. And I pray, God, that we would understand the profound and instructive faith of Abram and, and on display in this passage. And Lord, we would recognize how we have, how we are connected to the blessings that you promised to Abraham. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, one area of life that we might not expect a spiritual test is in the realm of eating. Now, I'm not talking about the temptation to overeat, though that is a test in itself. I'm talking about the temptation to secure the most and best food for yourself without regard to other people. Temptation to take the food for yourself and not let others have it. And I know this temptation all too well growing up in a household of six children. As I was younger, I learned quickly that if there's good food in the house, it's not going to last long. My siblings are going to go after it. So if my mom made a delicious cake, and, and I have a weakness for cake, I, I love a chocolate cake with a nice vanilla frosting, I had to be very savvy about consuming that cake. I wanted as much of it as possible. So when she, when she first serves it, I would eat at least two pieces. And then later that day, I'd circle back to have another piece. And then I'd rise early in the morning, the next morning, to get another piece for breakfast. Because I knew that if I waited around or if I wasn't active about pursuing this cake, it would be gone by noon the next day, and I would have had hardly any of it. I don't know if you had this kind of experience yourself growing up, maybe with cookies, or maybe when you went out and had a milkshake, or maybe it's something that you've experienced when it comes to French fries. Oh, French fries. French fries are very dangerous. Have you ever gone through the inner turmoil of someone asking you to share your fries. Especially if they if they told you in the beginning, oh, I don't want any. And then you have some, and then they're like, oh, can I have some of your fries? Oh, that's very painful. You know how delicious those things are. And you want to say to them in your flesh, get your own. These golden beauties are mine. I think we've all experienced something like this. 
And in one respect, one respect, these experiences are trivial, even to the point of being humorous. But let's be honest, what's happening in many of these situations when it comes to food and securing food for ourselves is that we're tempted to be selfish, just tempted to be selfish. We want to say, I have to have the best, not you. Who cares about you? I'm looking out for number one here. And we can act this way, not just with food, but with many parts of life and even things that are more serious. I have to have the best seat at the table. I should be the one to talk now and you pay attention to me. I'm the one who needs me time right now to watch my favorite show. You can take care of the housework. I should be the one to board the plane first and get my luggage in, in the space before it runs out. Or I need the organ donation, not you. Or I need to have my life saved and protected. We'll worry about you later. It's very easy to fall into this kind of thinking. And it's naturally how we think according to the sinful flesh. It's how we thought when we didn't know Jesus Christ, when we were dead in sin, when we ignored God and just lived for ourselves. In those days, we were committed to, to borrow a phrase from Joel Osteen, your best life now. We wanted our best life now, even if it meant that others had to suffer or take second place or third place or even 10th place. So what changed or what has to change in our thinking for us not to live this way anymore? Is it possible to change that perspective? Well, it is. Of course, we have to encounter Jesus Christ, the God, man and savior. We have to repent of our sin in our own way. We have to believe in him. And in doing this, there's a fundamental reorientation. We're turning in our perspective. How so? In many ways, but in one way that I want us to focus on, we move from seeking to live our best lives now. And I mean that in a material worldly sense, there is a sense that walking with Jesus is the best life now. But from a worldly perspective, we change, we reorient from looking for our best lives now to, to what? To looking for our best life later and looking for the life that is to come in Christ. We are able to forgo a temporary pleasure or gratification now because we know what's coming. And what's coming? Something so much better for us. This means that we don't need to fight for every last drop of pleasure, comfort, or security on earth, whether it's something as trivial as tasty food or in something serious like our own physical life and the preservation of it. We don't have to worry about that. We don't have to contend for that. Why? Because we have God and we're going to him. He is our inheritance. He is our fullness of joy. We are bound for his country and his kingdom. So why contend for the scraps of earth? On the contrary, in Christ, we gladly give up the gifts and treasures of earth for the sake of God and for the sake of others, because we know it will please him. And we know that that will just cause us to enjoy our future inheritance even more. Now, is this your perspective? Is this a viewpoint that you have embraced? Does your heart speak this way? Because it is the perspective of Abram. In fact, it is the same perspective as Jesus Christ himself 
and really of all true followers of him. And we're going to encounter more of that perspective in order that we can be strengthened in faith and walk with greater joy and holiness before God. And we're going to see that in Genesis 13. So if you haven't done so yet, please open your Bibles to Genesis 13. If you don't have a Bible, of course, you can take the Pew Bible in front of you. We're only on page 12. I know it seems so strange to talk about turning to page 12 of your Bible, but that's where we are. We're right in the beginning of the Bible. So page 12 in the Pew Bible. Otherwise, you can find it in your Bible. Genesis 13. We're going to read the whole chapter, examine the whole chapter. Let me set the scene for you again. Remember, I've just seen God bring Abram to Canaan. But at the end of chapter 12, this is something we haven't discussed yet. A famine incurs in Canaan. And Abram leaves Canaan for Egypt. While in Egypt, Abram undergoes a little testing. He's afraid that people will kill him to get his wife. His wife, Sarai, was very beautiful. He says, okay, I need you to lie for me. Tell people that I'm just your brother. You're my sister. That way they won't kill me because they'll know that I'm married to you. Well, this plan backfires. Abram, or Sarah ends up being taken as wife by Pharaoh. But God intervenes. God actually curses Pharaoh for taking Sarai as his wife. And once Pharaoh figures out what's going on, he gives Sarai back to Abram, and he loads, Sarah, or he loads Abram with a bunch of gifts and sends him on his way. God was protecting Sarai from being violated by Pharaoh. And God was even being gracious to Abram, who, by lying, really was not trusting God there. So, Pharaoh sends him on his way, and he heads back into the land of Canaan, and that's where the narrative picks up in our chapter. So follow along with me as I read Genesis 13, 1, down to the end of the chapter. So Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev, and he and his wife and all that belonged to him and Lot with him. Now, Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold. He went on his journeys from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai to the place of the altar, which he had made there formerly. And there Abram called on the name of the Lord, or the name Yahweh. Now Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, and the land could not sustain them while dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they were not able to remain together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. Now the Canaanite and the Perizzite were dwelling then in the land. So Abram said to Lot, Please let there be no strife between you and me, nor between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brothers. Is not the whole land before you? Please separate from me. If to the left, then I will go to the right, or to the right, then I will go to the left. Lot lifted up his eyes and saw all the valley of the Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere. This was before Yahweh destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah like the garden of Yahweh, like the land of Egypt as you go to Zoar. So Lot chose for himself all the valley of the Jordan, and Lot journeyed eastward. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled in the cities of the valley and moved his tents as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked exceedingly and sinners against Yahweh. Yahweh said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, now lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, and eastward, and westward. For all the land which you see, I will give it to you and to your descendants forever. 
I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth. So that if anyone can number the dust of the earth, then your descendants can also be numbered. Arise, walk about the land through its length and breadth, for I will give it to you. Then Abram moved his tents and came and dwelt by the oaks of Mamre, which are in Hebron, and there he built an altar to Yahweh. Now let's study this passage inductively, as we do, according to our method. We start with simple observations. This passage describes the separation of Lot and all that belonged to him from Abram and all that belonged to him. Why do they need to separate? We get that explained in verses 2 to 7. God has blessed Abram and Lot with so much material blessing that the land cannot sustain all their stuff together. Their servants are even quarreling with one another. We could have a mini war on our hands, and this between relatives. Something needs to be done. By the way, notice that the end of verse 7 says the Canaanite and the Perizzite are then in the land. They're not the only ones there. They're not the only ones making use of the land. This land can't sustain all this combined usage. So notice what Abram does in verse 8. He initiates a conversation with Lot, saying he doesn't want strife between them and that they need to separate. Notice the offer that Abram gives Lot in verse 9. Basically, Abram says to Lot, take a look at the whole land and choose where you want to go. If you go one way, I'll go the other. That way, Abram's implication is, we won't overload the land and come to strife. Now, notice verse 10. It says, Lot lifted up his eyes. Now, just a side comment. Don't make the mistake of thinking this phrase means that Lot was looking down and then he looked up and saw something. That's what it sounds like in English. But you need to know that this is a common Hebrew saying. It is a common idiom. Idiom, just like an idiomatic expression. It just means he looked or he saw. This is a phrase used all throughout the Old Testament. And if we're not careful, we'll be like, oh, you know, he must have been so depressed. Or he must have been so guilty. He was looking down and then he lifted his eyes. No, no, no. It doesn't have any of that connotation. It's just another way of saying he looked or he saw. So we see this in verse 10. We also see it in verse 14 when God tells Abram, lift up your eyes. Again, no connotation of depression or anything like that. No, it just means he looked or he saw. So Lot in verse 10 takes a look around. He lifts his eyes, takes a look around. What does he notice? Mm, that valley of the Jordan, that sure looks pretty nice. It's well watered like the garden of Yahweh, like Eden itself. It's well watered also like parts of Egypt, like around the Nile River. This must be a very lush area if it gets such descriptions. Notice the statement in the middle of verse 10, though. It's a little... Little expression right in the middle. This was before Yahweh destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, Sodom and Gomorrah were part of the Jordan Valley. So, quick interpretation question. Why would the author, Moses, feel compelled to put in this little insertion about Sodom and Gomorrah not being destroyed yet when Lot is looking at the Valley of the Jordan? What do you think? Lot's looking. He says, wow, that, that sure looks great. And then Moses says, by the way, this is before Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed. What's he, what's he indicating? 
All right, we'll, we'll talk about that idea. Was Lot drawn to the sinful pleasures of Sodom and Gomorrah? Certainly the text doesn't say that explicitly. We'll talk about whether we can infer that. But I don't think that's the implication here from this from this middle verse. Uh, Rob, what were you going to say? Right. Mm, yes, I think this is the implication we are to draw from this. Again, we'll talk about the idea of Sodom's wickedness, but if he's talking about how good the land looks, and he's like, by the way, this is before Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed, implication is that the land had changed, or at least part of the land did. It didn't look that way anymore. And in fact, we're going to see this ourselves in just a moment when we look at a map of Israel. But he's saying, just remember, at that time, things were a little different. Sodom and Gomorrah weren't destroyed yet. And so that's why when he's looking at this lush valley, he sees what he sees. In fact, let's pull up the map now. This is a satellite image of the land of Israel. And this will help us appreciate a little bit of what Lot's looking at. So let me pull out my little pointer here. So if you don't know anything about Israel's geography, and this is something I've come to know a little bit better since being in seminary, is that Israel's geography basically divides into four strips of terrain, four kinds of environments, and they basically run north to south. So if you look where my pointer is here, this section right near the coast, this is coastal plain. It runs basically down the whole length of Israel. Decent water here, relatively flat. Then you have a strip in the middle of Israel. This is hill country, runs north and south, very hilly, more arid. Then you have a third strip that comes down right here from the Sea of Galilee, Jordan River to the Salt Sea or the Dead Sea. This is the Jordan Valley. And as you can see from all the green up here, this is a pretty well watered area. Even today, it's pretty lush. Now, these other parts of Israel, they have a little bit of greenery, partially due to modern irrigation. But here around, or here in the Jordan Valley, it is quite lush. Except, you may notice down here around the Dead Sea, it's not so lush down there. All, all brown, all, all deserty looking. There's a reason for that. And then the fourth area of land will be on the other side of the Jordan. This is the land of the Transjordanian Plateau. The elevation rises sharply and it becomes much more arid and it's basically right on the edge of the desert. So in many ways, Israel's environment is, is similar to the environment of Southern California, where I'm living now around Los Angeles. It's an arid area, but it does have rain, seasonal rain, and there, it, there are some well-watered sections, particularly the Jordan Valley. Over here, no major rivers. There are some streams, there are some springs, but it's mainly dependent on rainfall. This is technically the land of Canaan, and this would be right on the edge, right on the edge of Canaan. So you can see why even today, Lot looks at the Valley of the Jordan and he says, that looks pretty nice. Now, what, what's, his gonna, what's his decision gonna be then? Abram's given him his choice of all the land. He chooses the Valley of the Jordan, no brainer. It's, it's the lushest area or likely the lushest area. So we can see why Lot makes his choice. But look again at verses 11, 12, and 13. 
Verse 11 says, so Lot chose for himself all the valley of the Jordan. Verse 12 says, Abram settled in the land of Canaan. And verse 12 further says, Lot settled in the cities of the valley. Hmm, this is interesting. Lot is transitioning out of a nomadic lifestyle. He was traveling in the country, but now he's settling in the cities. And then verse 12 says, at the end of verse 12, and he moved his tents as far as Sodom. I think Ken was thinking about this with his comment. You hear Sodom, you should be hearing a dramatic dun-dun-dun in your head because we know what Sodom's associated with. Verse 10 already mentions that God would destroy Sodom along with Gomorrah. Unless we miss the association, verse 13 says, Now the men of Sodom were wicked exceedingly and sinners against Yahweh. It's a bit of foreshadowing of later events. We're going to see what happens to Sodom. But we can see now that Lot ended up living in the area of Sodom, of an area of great evildoers. But then notice verses 14 to 17. We see a new promise from God to Abram. He says, I will give to you and your descendants all the land around you that you see, the land of Canaan. Now, I say this is new because back in Genesis 12, God told Abram to go to Canaan. And he said he would make Abram into a great nation, but he did not specifically promise the land. But now, now that Abram is alone, separated from Lot, God tells Abram, I'm giving this land to you and to your seed. Now, seed doesn't appear in our translation, but it's just the more literal rendering of the word descendants. We see descendants in our text, to your descendants. This is the same as the Hebrew word for seed. And descendants is not a bad translation because seed, even though it is singular, it is a collective singular. It has the idea of a plural in it. It's Abram's lineage, though it can refer to specific people in that lineage too. This land, God says, it will belong to Abram and to his promised seed. This is a new promise. And God reiterates one of his previous promises also. God promises to multiply Abram's seed to be like the dust of the earth. Now, how many pieces of dust are on earth? It's uncountable. I mean, just on one beach, there's an uncountable amount of dust or grains of sand, let alone dust, right? I mean, grains of sand is even, even more substantial, but dust. God says, so will your seed be, Abram. But by the way, how many children does Abram have at this time? None. Zero. And how old is Abram? He's past 75 years old. And God says, you're going to have descendants like the dust. If you can count the dust, you will be able to count your descendants. Now notice verse 17. God tells Abram, walk about this promised land. Check it out. Go through its length and breadth, or its width and breadth. And what does Abram do in verse 18? He starts doing that. Starts moving about the land, and notice he builds an altar to Yahweh by the oaks of Mamre at Hebron. What's an altar for, usually? Yeah, exactly. It's a worship place, though it is also used in other parts of the Old Testament for memorials. When something significant happens, sometimes a person will build an altar to remember it. But it is primarily a worship site. For offering sacrifices or from remembrance. 
I think this is a really awesome passage. It may not seem like it's that significant at first, but let's consider some things of you know, when it comes to interpretation. Let's deal with the main question. Was Lot being selfish or rude or sinful when he chose the Jordan Valley for himself? The answer, I believe, is maybe, but maybe not. Here's where we might get into a little bit of trouble due to speculation. One could argue Abram, as the social superior, as the familial superior to Lot, when he offers Lot a choice of land, Lot should have, as a sign of respect, have given the choice back to Abram. Abram's being polite. Hey, you take your choice of land. What Lot should have done is say, no, 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 no. You should have the first choice. Or because of this relationship, Lot should have left the best land to Abram and taken a lesser choice for himself. Say, oh, thank you for that choice, but I know I shouldn't choose the best land. I'm leaving that for you because you're the one who should have it. And the Jordan Valley is the place where Sodom is and where sinners are. And Lot gets in trouble for living in that area. Chapter 14, he ends up being taken captive by marauding kings. And then we know what God does to Sodom later in Genesis 19. So God obviously disapproved of Lot's choice. Well, really? I'm not quite sure. Because one could also argue that the way to honor somebody who gives you a genuine choice is to make a genuine choice. Or when someone gives you a gift, the way to honor that person is to accept the gift and enjoy it. I mean, isn't this what Paul does with the Philippians in the New Testament? They send him a gift while he's in prison, and he writes a letter back to them telling them, I didn't need the gift, but you know what? I accept it. I accept it as a sign of your love and as an offering to God as a way to increase your heavenly reward. It doesn't send the gift back to them. That would have been hurtful. He accepts it. And we're not aware of what exactly the customs would be at this time. This is a long time ago in a culture that we don't entirely understand. We have very little historical information about the time of Abraham and the patriarchs outside of what the Bible expresses. So was Lot violating custom by not giving the choice back to Abram? We don't know. Maybe you could even say Lot was being thoughtful of Abram in making this choice. He could have said to himself, well, you know what? The promise that Abram gave to God was about the land of Canaan. If I choose the land of Canaan for myself, I'll be impinging on what God said to Abram. I'm going to leave Canaan. I'm going to go to the Jordan Valley and leave Canaan to Abram, because after all, that's what God promised to him. And was Lot so aware of Sodom's reputation at this time? He's a foreigner to the land. We do know that Sodom is sinful. We're told that in the text. But did he know that? Did he know just how bad it would be? And if he did, did he intend to go near Sodom? Was it other circumstances that later brought him there? You get the idea with these questions. There's a lot of things we don't know about what's going on in Lot's mind. And it's very hard to judge 4,000 years later in a very different culture. Maybe Lot was being selfish. Maybe he was being naive. Maybe he was being foolish. Maybe he did know something about Sodom. And he's like, you know what? It's not going to affect me. But Lot's motivation and his thinking is not the key idea of this passage. It 
doesn't really matter so much what Lot was thinking in the end. What does matter here? At least two things. First of all, we need to ask, why is it important in God's sovereign plan that Lot separates from Abram here? Right. God's promises were to Abram, not to Lot. And specifically, which promise that appears in this passage for the first time? The land promise. It's significant that as soon as Lot leaves, what does God say to Abram? I'm giving this land to you and to your seed. If Lot were still with Abram, then that would be a confusing declaration because we would ask, as other people would, oh, is Lot included? Are Lot's descendants included? And consider how significant this would be for the people of Israel because Lot's descendants end up being neighbors. Ammon and Moab, two kingdoms that are right on the edge of Israel, they come from Lot's line. So if Lot's still with Abram, will Ammon and Moab have a claim on Canaan? That's not a problem, though, with how the events actually turn out, because Lot, according to God's sovereign will, separates from Abram. So God can give this promise to Abram without any confusion. No, this is to Abram and to his seed, not Lot's. And the other thing I think we should note, what does offering this choice, this choice in which Abram might not have come out with the best land, depending on what Lot chose, what does it indicate about Abram's faith? It has to indicate that Abram trusted God to provide and keep his promises no matter what. Abram didn't have to worry about losing a certain piece of land to Lot, even the Jordan Valley. Why? He's got God. He's got the promised future inheritance in God. Abram can afford to be generous to Lot and perhaps even be abused by Lot's selfishness if Lot was indeed being selfish. And why is that? because Abram already and continually has a generous God. You see how this ties in with what I was talking about in the beginning? Brothers and sisters, it is the same for us. This is why we can afford to be kind to others. This is why we can give up the best on earth to others, because we have something so much better than anything that is on earth. We have our King and Savior, Jesus Christ. We have his amazing sacrificial work, his continual tender intercession on our behalf. We have everlasting life in God's glorious kingdom. So who cares even about the Jordan Valley? A place like the Garden of God is nothing compared to the maker of the Garden of God. And he's the one that you have if you are in Jesus Christ. So we can see some application here. Do you have a future-looking faith that can be afford or that can afford to be kind and generous to others in the same way that Abram was able? Now, one other question I want to bring up, well, an answer that might surprise you is this. 
The promises God made to Abram, including the land promise, they are said to be long to Abram and to his promised seed. Who is the promised seed of Abram? I think what we want to answer right away is, oh, Israel. Ethnic Israel, right? But we need to nuance that answer a little bit. Yes, in one sense, the people of Israel are Abraham's seed. And they would inherit the land promised to Abram, at least temporarily. But are all Israel the promised seed of Abraham? Are all Israel the inheritors of the blessings promised to Abraham? Remember the words of John the Baptist. John the Baptist in Luke 3, verses 7 and 9. Luke 3, 7 and 9. This is what he says to the Jews of his day. Verse 7 says, So he began saying to the crowds who are going out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones God is able to raise up children to Abraham. Indeed, the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. So every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Do you realize what John was saying? He says, even if you're a physical descendant of Abraham, if you're not a spiritual descendant, you aren't getting his promises. You are getting God's wrath. In fact, in hyperbole, John says that God is able to raise up descendants to Abraham, who are not physically descendant of Abraham. Now, that sounds really confusing, right? God can make descendants of Abraham who are not descendants of Abraham, even from stones. What? How is that possible? Ah, the Apostle Paul has something to say about that. Now, listen to Galatians. You can turn there if, they wish, if you wish. Galatians 3, verses 13 and 14. Galatians 3, 13 to 14. Paul writes this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. In order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. And then Galatians 3.16, just a couple of verses later. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed, that is, Christ. Now that is really profound. Who, according to Paul, is the ultimate promised seed of Abraham? It's Jesus Christ. So this is to say that the blessings of Abraham were passed down by promise from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob and down through history until they reached Christ, who is Abraham's seed. So then, who gets the blessings of Abraham? Not simply those who are in Israel, but those who are in whom? In Christ. Thus, in an amazing way, Gentiles, too, can be made the inheritors of Abraham's blessing by faith in Christ. 
Now, this doesn't mean Israel's excluded. When Israel repents, and Israel will repent one day, the Bible says, of their wicked, blasphemous rejection of God and rejection of their Messiah, this will be after God greatly judges them, that will happen one day, and they will share as a nation in the blessings of Christ and the blessings of Abraham. But for the Jews who have already believed, and for the Gentiles who are found in Christ, they are already inheritors of Abraham's blessings through Christ, the ultimate seed of Abraham. Gentiles then are not second-class citizens in God's country, in God's kingdom, behind the Jews. But neither are they superior to or replacements of the Jews, of believing Jews, that is. Paul talks about this in Ephesians 2. Jew and Gentile, he says, have been united into one man in Christ. And thus, Paul can say to the Gentiles in Ephesians 2, 19 to 22, Ephesians 2, 19 to 22, So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being fitted together, is growing into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together to a dwelling of God in the Spirit. That's a wonderful reality. All believers, whether Jew or Gentile, have been made fellow inheritors of God's kingdom. There will be a millennial kingdom one day in Israel under Messiah, but who's going to be ruling in that kingdom with him? Believing Jews and believing Gentiles all of those who are true descendants and inheritors of Abraham through Christ. So this actually ties right back into the application I mentioned earlier. Brothers and sisters at Calvary, this is what you have to look forward to if you're in Christ. Just as Abraham looked to the heavenly kingdom, the heavenly city, so do you. In a very real sense, even a literal sense. So don't get caught up in the things of the world. Gladly give up the passing treasures of earth for God's sake, for others' sake. Persevere in your faith. Don't give up in the race because your reward is coming. I know the summer class I'm in right now, I have a couple of summer classes I'm taking. The first one I'm in is on exegesis of Hebrews, the book of Hebrews in the New Testament. And it's been a great study so far. But one of the themes of the book that comes through so clearly is that when we fix our eyes on our great Savior, and on the reward that is coming in him and through him, we receive the grace we need to persevere in the present. In this way, really, we become just like Abraham and all the other saints of old who looked to God and obeyed in faith while they waited for God's promise. We are to fall right in line with them. That's God's will for us. And that is the way of joy. Questions about what you've heard today? Yes, is that a hand? Okay, good question. Can I make a comment about what's going on in Gaza and the Golan Heights? I'm not super up to date with what's going on politically in Israel. I know just from the past decade or so that the people living in Israel now 
are in a continual conflict with non-Jews who also want to live in the land. One thing we do need to realize, and this may sound controversial to you, but I think this is just true according to the scriptures, is that modern Jews who don't believe in Christ are doing some very evil things in Israel. And they're doing it to the Palestinians and they, they do it to their own people. These are not modern Israelite or those who are Israelis. They are unbelievers, just like other unbelievers in the world. And so they do wicked things. Modern Israel doesn't get a pass because of what God did with Israel in, in, in history. This is a people that does not acknowledge God. And so we should be, we should not be quick to say, oh, they, they have the right to the land. They can kick out the Palestinians. They can do whatever they want. Remember what Jesus said to Israel, your house has left you desolate until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Israel will have a kingdom in that land one day, but that kingdom is promised to them when they repent. So we should not automatically just support Israel and everything Israel does. So I hope that I hope that you can appreciate the nuance of that. You're welcome. If you have more questions about that, I'd, I'd love to talk with you more about that. But that may be may be a little thought provoking to you. But we want to we want to think biblically about this. All right, that's or right, were you going to say something more? Right. All right. You're welcome. And let's let's not say that Israel is necessarily the the villain. I mean, there are people who are doing evil things to Israel, or people who have done evil things to Jews all throughout history. We have we're in this interesting situation when it comes to the Jews is that we do sympathize with them because they are image bearers of God and they're they're fellow people and they need to be saved just like everyone else. But we can't absolve them of evil things that they themselves do. Really, they are in just as much need as everyone else in the world. They need to turn, repent, acknowledge their savior, just as all the Gentile peoples who live in the world. They need Christ. That was Paul's heart. And you can hear that in the book of Romans. He says, my heart is for Israel, that Israel will be saved. And yet, the Bible can also say, those who are Jews and don't believe in Christ, they are synagogue of Satan. So we have to kind of keep both of those things in our minds at the same time. Now, that's all we have time to talk about today. I welcome talking with you more via email if you have questions. We've alluded to Sodom and Gomorrah in today's class. Next time, we'll see what happened, how God investigated and ultimately judged those cities. Let's close in prayer. Lord God, we thank you for this testimony of Abram. We thank you for your promises to him that we, amazingly, God, we have become partakers in, we've become inheritors of through Christ, even though we are not, most of us, physically descended from Abraham. Thank you. Thank you for being so gracious to us and allowing us to enter in and even to become full inheritors. Jesus Christ, you are wonderful to us. 
You are such a gracious Savior, and we thank you for your intercession. We thank you for saving us from our sins. I pray, God, that at Calvary they would be more in awe of you today, more enthralled by you and your great love and the wonderful salvation blessings we have in you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, thank you all. See you again soon.